as Donald told us, told the choir earlier, every once in a while you've got to have an injection of Beethoven. Okay? Let's open our Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. summer we've been working our way through Colossians and uh, we've looked at the new man and we looked at what he's supposed to be and looked at the new clothes that we're supposed to put on and today we come if you're a new man then you need new attitudes you can't continue in the old way of thinking you have to put those aside now you have to understand who Paul was writing to in the midst of this. The Colossians were not not that far removed from paganism. So when he comes with some of these things that we will read about today, these were very radical views and radical thoughts in New Testament times. That man, everybody, should be very different than the pagan world. That we should not maintain the same views, not maintain the same expectations, or certainly the same attitudes. And he addresses this in relationships. So let's stand together as I read the word of God. If you're able, please stand with me. Colossians chapter 3, verses 17 through chapter 4, verse 1. Heavenly Father, come upon us and open our eyes that we might have understanding that we would see your word, that it would dwell in our hearts, and that we would live it out. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children, that they may not lose heart. Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. This is God's inspired word for us today, so please be seated. What happens when a person becomes a Christian? Do they really change? I mean, is it... Or is it just, well, they were nice before and they're nice now? Or is it something that really happens? The Lord comes upon us and and removes from us this sinfulness, removes from us this old heart, and we are given this new heart. What happens to a wife when she becomes a Christian? What happens to a husband when they become a Christian? What happens to the children and their relationship to their parents? How about, since we don't have slaves and masters today... No matter what my daughters think that I make them do around the house, it's not slaves and masters. We have employers and employees. What happens in a world of business when an employee becomes a Christian or an employer? How does that relationship change? How does the work ethic or the way the treatment change? Many wives have testified that when their husbands became Christians, 
man, something really changed. Many husbands have said, when their wives became Christians, something changed. Many parents have said, I don't know what happened to my son, but when he went off on that trip, he came back and he was different. Okay? When I became a Christian, I went to Ocean, on a trip to Ocean City, New Jersey, with uh, Youth for Christ. When I came back, I had been challenged while I was there not to tell my parents what had happened for 30 days and to see if they could see the change in me. After about three weeks, my mother said, I know what you did. <laughs> she says, I know what you did. Many employer has said, I don't know what happened to, to Bubba over there, but, but there's something different in him. Okay, That's what should happen. Remember last week we said it should not be beyond our pale or understanding to be asked the question, are you him? Are you Jesus? Okay. Now, it should be the same type of thing here. There's something different. Something has happened in your life when you became a Christian. It should be that clear in our world. Now, let me give you a little bit of history as to what Christianity has meant in society. Because Christianity really has been at the heart of societal change in so many areas throughout history. I I can't give you all of them. We just don't have enough time. I'll just hit a couple high points. John Wesley argued for the abolition abolition of slavery, the reform of prisons, the education of the masses. Almost everybody knows that it was the Christian faith of William Wilberforce that moved him as he was in Parliament to year after year push for the abolition of the slave trade in England. In the Second Great Awakening in the United States and also in England, at the end of that, that really motivated uh, the creation of education for the masses in the United States. It was the Christians who built the universities. It was the churches that started these. In America, Elizabeth Fry promoted prison reform. Theodore Fleitner was a Christian in Germany in the 1800s. He built halfway houses for convicts who were coming out of prison that they could make the transition back into society. He built halfway houses for unwed mothers. He advocated hospitals for the sick. He advocated orphanages for children. One of the women trained by Fleitner, whose last name was Nightingale, became the mother of modern nursing. Okay? The seventh Earl of Shaftesbury of England, I didn't get his name, but he's just the seventh Earl, described himself as an evangelical of the evangelicals. He promoted legislation to cut the hours of factory labor in half, to prohibit the use of women working in coal mines and of children in factories and farm gangs. He promoted legislation to transfer the mentally ill and the mentally handicapped from prison into facilities where they could be cared for. William Carey, the famous missionary in India, secured the abolition of widow burning and of the sacrifice of infants. At a, at a high point of the year, uh, families would come and they would take their firstborn and throw it into the river. He put a stop to that. In Africa, missionaries discouraged discouraged polygamy, they fought the slave trade, they built schools, they built hospitals. Christians have been changing society since the first century. J.C. Wenger, an author, writes about the, the state of society in first century uh, Israel. The moral, moral level of society was dismal at the time of the New Testament, and sin prevailed in many forms. Into this discouraged world came Christ and his spirit and his transforming disciples. They were filled with joy, motivated by love, which the pagans could not grasp. They proclaimed the good news. These early Christians insisted on bringing 
all of life under the lordship of Christ. Not just their worship time, but all of life came under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Christianity has always had great social implications, not because Christians became a political party, not because we made social change the, the heart of the gospel. Social change has, been, has happened because Christ changed individual hearts. And then those individuals went out and lived the faith and made a difference in their society. They had a lower tolerance for sin. They had a desire to act compassionately, to care for others. That's what had happened. That's how the world began to change. Now, Paul addresses three primary relationships within society. Wives and husbands, parents and children, servants and masters. And as I said, we don't have servants and masters in our society, so we'll talk about employers and employees. And in New Testament times, these were all relationships that were centered on the home. Obviously, they were in the home. Now, what Paul is introducing here is nothing new. It's nothing new. We read this stuff in Ephesians, and we read it as well in Corinthians. Uh, The authority on the part of the husband and the submission on the part of the wife. But there's a very different perspective that Paul gives that most of society that day did not understand. Let's look at verse 17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. A new purpose. Whatever we do, we do it in the name of our Lord. We do it for his glory and not our own. So it says, wives, be subject to your husbands or submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Now that's a simple statement, straightforward. But there have been, there's been such consternation about that statement. And of course, the, the larger, more expanded statement back in the letter to Ephesians. And so often people like to just stop there. Okay, uh, A friend of mine went to a wedding. And he said, oh, it was a great wedding until the sermon came. Usually, you know, when I do a, a wedding, there's about a five or six minute uh, time where we look at a passage from God's word. And often I will look at, at the passage of Ephesians and talk about the responsibilities of the wife and the responsibilities of the husband. And they said, we were at this wedding and went along fine. But there was a 20 minute sermon and 15 of those minutes were devoted to the bride's job of being submissive to her husband. Now, is that a wedding day you're going to remember, huh? Okay. <laughs> I thought, well, that's a little heavy-handed, I thought. Usually I take more time on the groom because the bride is to submit to her husband, and that's easy if the husband is doing what? Loving his wife as Christ loved the church. Okay? That's the hard job. Now, if men, we do that, oh, our wife's job's easy. Okay? Who doesn't want to follow a leader who is seeking only the will of the Lord? That's the easy part. Paul's call to submission is not a call to servile submission. A complete putting away of your own will and becoming a doormat. Don't ever think of that. Often it is um, tried to be uh, described as that in society, but that's looking at it with a 21st century mindset, not a biblical mindset. Paul calls wives to a practical recognition, a practical recognition of the divine order of the marital relationship. 
Paul wants wives to know that not only has God made it this way, but he has made it for their benefit, for their good. Paul's call to submission entails that the wife's sacrifice be self-giving, be loyalty to their husband, the same type of sacrifice and loyalty that Christ showed to us. Okay. Paul gives the command in a specific context. He says, wives, be submissive. Submissive to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Now, this is what it means for a married woman to express her faith in Christ. The author, Dick Lucas, writes, he says, According to Paul, there is no possibility of a married woman's surrender to a heavenly Christ, which is not made visible and actual by some submission to an earthly husband. People have attempted to explain away not only this passage, passage in Ephesians, the, 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 the discussion of this issue in Corinthians, saying, well, it's all Paul, and Paul was a chauvinist, and we know that, and he was just giving us not the Spirit's view, but it was Paul's view. Okay? Paul had an issue with women, and, and so he said, be in your place. No, that's not right. They've also tried to explain it away as being a cultural thing. It was a male-dominated society. They wanted to keep women in their place. They didn't want them to stir the pot. So they said, be submissive to your husbands. Well, though, that's not correct either. Because if we look at it that way, then men, we can look at the passage in Ephesians that says we should love our husbands, or love our wives, love our wives, uh, as Christ loved the church. And we can pitch that one out too, because that was just cultural. No, that's not the way it goes. That is not the way it goes. Just because the date is 2009 doesn't mean that this is out of date. Okay, this is the word of God. He does things for a purpose and for a reason. Okay, now remember wives and and husbands, the idea of submissiveness here is not the husband ripping off orders and the wife duly going, yes, sir, yes, sir, yes, sir. No, that's not it at all. Husbands, you may have a short life if that's the what you think of it. Okay, it's the idea that wives have a spirit of submissiveness to their own husbands. This is your own husband. When I say own, I don't mean... Your husband, I mean your own husband. Paul says very clearly that your body is not your own. It belongs to your husband. Your body is not your own. It belongs to your wife. You possess him. He possesses you. There is an intimacy here that is not known anywhere else in society. Okay. The kind of submission certainly does not mean inferiority. Christ was submissive to our Heavenly Father. And what happened to Christ? Because he was submissive and obeyed, he was exalted above every other name. And it is not absolute, certainly not absolute. Acts chapter 5 says, well, you choose whether you ought to obey God or man. Ladies, if if your husband ever says, I want you to do this and it is unbiblical, just say, no, I don't have to. You certainly do not have to. You must obey God rather than men. Okay, that wasn't very long on ladies. Husbands. See, this is the hard part, because there is that passage in Ephesians which said, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And we can go through the list of what he did for the church. But the big thing was he gave himself up for his bride, the church. And we have looked at the marriage imagery throughout scripture several times. And we see that the marriage relationship is a reflection of the relationship between Christ and the church. So the Greek here. In verse 19, it says, Husbands, love your wives. Do not be embittered against them. The Greek literally says, 
You husbands, keep on loving your wives and stop being bitter towards them. So obviously there was a problem at Colossians, at the church at Colossae. Husbands, it says, continue to love your wives. Now, yeah, I haven't dated uh, for, uh, let me think, 24, uh, almost 28 years. Okay, so I forget what it's like dating. But, you know, when you're dating, you're all goobery and you're in love. And, and then perhaps as time goes on, mm, does that love fade? Uh, well, Paul's saying stop being bitter towards them. So obviously something has happened that that love has changed into an embitterment toward their wives. Keep on loving your wives. This is not an emotion. This is not just a sexual love. It is that deep affection that sees your wife as a sister in the Lord, sees your wife as the weaker vessel to be cared for, as your best friend, as the most important human being in the world, as your most important investment. Gentlemen, if we spend more time worrying about our money than we do about our wives, we have the wrong investment. Okay, We have the wrong investment. We should invest more in our wives. Notice that Paul says men should love their wives. That is agape love. That's self-giving love. It is not based on anything else, not what you're going to get back. It is a self-giving love that Christ has shown to the church. It's a love that looks after the interest, the best interest of the other. We must invest in that love. Got any question about whether you love that fashion? You can turn to 1 Corinthians 13. Everywhere you see the word uh, love and how it acts, just put your own name in. Well, when I deal with my wife, is Randy always kind? Is he loving? Is Randy forgiving? Well, I've got work to do. I've got work to do. Okay. Now, Paul knew that a man's love for his own wife was not just a blessing to her. It was a blessing to him. Because he relates in other places, for those who love their own wives, love themselves. They demonstrate that. Paul knows the happiness of one's spouse directly impacts their own happiness. What's the phrase today about mama being happy? Okay. Now, if your wife is happy, aren't you happier? I should hope so. Peter talks about men. The reason the Lord doesn't hear your prayers is because you're not treating your wife right. So if you think, I've got this, I don't know why I'm not close to the Lord. Husbands, the first thing you ought to do is check your relationship with your wife. If that's not good, go make that right. Then the Lord will say, okay, now that you've done your homework, let's, let's talk. Children. Now, this word stands for everybody who is still under the care of their parents at home. Okay? Or uh, in our society, if you're at college and you're still under the leadership of your parents, uh, then it applies to you as well. As long as you're at home, your parents are responsible for you. Uh, this is a big group of kids here, so I'm going to preach down here. Okay, um, As long as you're at home, your parents are responsible for you. And you're under their leadership and their control. And you have one thing, one command to obey. Obey your parents in all things. Uh, In what things? All things. All things. Why? Because it's pleasing to the Lord. Okay, the Lord takes great pleasure when you are obedient to your parents. When you say, yes, ma'am, and yes, sir, and do what they say, the Lord's up there. I I, I don't want to mischaracterize the Lord, but he's going, yes, 
Okay, this is good. Look at the opposite end. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says that a child's disobedience characterizes the pagans. Not the believers, but the pagans. And in 2 Timothy 3, when Paul characterizes the evil of the last days, one of those evils is disobedient children. You got it? Obey your parents. Now, the, the, the same caveat applies to children as applies to wives. If your parents tell you to do something that's not biblical, you don't have to be obedient to them. But don't go around saying, I didn't find that in the Bible, I don't have to do it. Okay? No, that doesn't, doesn't quite work. Because there are explicit things in Scripture and implicit things in Scripture. And your parents are there to deal with those implicit things. They, you have to trust their authority and their wisdom. How old were, you, were your parents when they were born? I know. Yeah, yeah. I grew up. Okay, I went through all of those things, and I've got a lot of years of experience and understanding in those things. And digging into the Word, and there are those implicit teachings there that are very clear when you tie them all together. So your parents are there to say, well, the Scripture doesn't quite say that. Your parents say, Scripture says this, and they understand it. So you are to obey your parents because it brings great pleasure to the Lord. Dads. Now, I don't know why it doesn't say, parents, do not exasperate your children. It just says, fathers. Now, I can guess this. Ladies are probably, stereotypically, 99% much more compassionate and caring than men. Not that we're not. But we tend to get a little bit more frustrated, maybe a little bit more short-tempered, maybe a little bit more likely to cut our kids off and say, no, this is the way, why? Because I said so, instead of working it out and explaining and doing those things. Um, So it says, fathers, do not exasperate your children, that they may not lose heart. Dads, how can we not exasperate our children? I, I... Compiled a list here from a couple sources. And exasperate would be irritate, okay? Overprotection. Don't trust your kids. No matter how much they demonstrate that they are trustworthy, don't trust them. That will irritate your children. And then sooner or later they'll go, what's the difference? He's not going to trust me anyway. So then they'll do things that you don't like. Favoritism. Why can't you be like your brother? Okay, he was smart. Uh, he never did this. Uh, don't show. If you want to exasperate your children, show favoritism. If you want to exasperate your children, then depreciate their worth. You're just a kid. What do you know? Okay, value their input. They might be wrong, but you've got to listen and value their input. Always discourage your children. If you want to frustrate them, you irritate them, just discourage them. Make them feel like they're never going to succeed. Uh, you'll never amount to anything. I'll tell you what, I, they bring home a B. Well, what, what's wrong with an A? Couldn't you produce? Discourage your children. Make sure that they know they're never good enough for you. Don't, if you want to exasperate your children, don't demonstrate affection. Don't go out of your way to love on your kids. Don't give them those silly little nicknames that only you call them, okay? Don't grab on them 
and, you know, give them noogies and, and all that kind of stuff to let them know that you care and you love them. Don't do that. That will exasperate your children if you don't do that. If you want to exasperate your children, don't give them standards. You can really irritate them by not giving them any rules. You know what? They're young and they'll be okay or, or they'll figure it out sooner or later. No. They need parameters. They feel safe within them. You want to exasperate your children? Criticize them all the time. Don't create a positive environment where they can grow and learn. Criticize all that they do. They'll never be good enough. If you want to exasperate them, neglect your children. Don't play with them. Don't be involved in their lives. Set them children must be seen and not heard. No, that's wrong. Over-discipline your children, not correctively. Okay, if you want to exasperate your children, give them more discipline to the point that it is hurtful, not corrective. Okay? Those are ways that you will, fathers, exasperate your children. And if you do those things, they will lose heart. And then you'll wonder why they don't care about you. Slaves, servants, masters, employees, employers, very simply. What's the golden rule doing to others as you would have them doing to you? Basically, that covers it. How do you want your employer to treat you as an employee? Then that's the way you ought to treat them. Okay? Why? Well, within, remember this culture, in the Roman world, slaves were simply a tool. They were a human tool. And the master owned them. They had complete control over their lives. If they were disobedient, that was grounds for killing them. They could beat them. They could do whatever they want to the slaves. Fortunately, we, that's not the way it works in employer-employee relationships today. But remember... You are to treat one another in the way that Christ has loved us. We are to treat those with authority over us as those who have been placed by the Lord. Whether there are employers or whether there are governments, it's very clear. Treat them as with respect because the Lord has placed them there. And, and it is not absolute until the time at which they deviate from the word of God. Now, there might be punishments in, in society for following the word of God over man, but you must do that. You must follow the word of God, not the word of man. So, ladies, how's your submissiveness? Men, how's your love? Children, how's your obedience? Okay. Parents, dads, do you exasperate your children? And then how do you treat your employer? How do you treat your employees? See, when Christ comes into our lives, he changes us, and that, that must be demonstrable. It must be seen by those around us. And Paul highlights these relationships because they're at the heart of society. The family is at the heart of society. And if we can't get these relationships right, we're going to have a lot of trouble getting the other relationships right. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you and... and a great passage, challenging in, in so many ways. But yet, we know when we do these things, there is a great blessing that falls upon us. These are not always the easiest thing. Ladies, no, it is not always easy to be submissive to their husbands. Husbands, we know it is not always easy 
to demonstrate the love that Christ has for the church to our wives. Because we are selfish, we get focused on other things, and we fall short so often. Children know they have their own wills, their own desires. They become frustrated, and it becomes difficult to obey their parents. Yet, you say it is pleasing to you when they do. It is a demonstration of their desire to follow you by obeying their parents. Fathers, we find it so difficult. It's easy to get wrapped up in our own lives, in our own work, in our own personalities. Expect too much out of our children, not give them credit enough for stuff. Forget to say how much we love them. Lord, come upon us and work on each of our hearts, wherever we fall along this spectrum that we would be in obedience to your word, that in what we do, it would be evident that Christ has changed us, that his love has come and descended upon us, and a new heart has been brought to us, and we live this out in a society that is darkened, a society that does not desire the things of God, but yet when you work through us, When our heart is changed and we go into the midst of that society, starting with our relationships at home and then going out, our relationships at work, and how we interact with the rest of society, they see Christ in us. They hear it from our lips. Lord, might we be strong in all of these things, never compromising, never holding back what it is we know to be true, never being afraid, for you are with us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our hymn is 256, The Old Rugged Cross. Let's stand as we sing 256.